This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. South Carolina gets early attention from presidential candidates because of the state's first in the South primary. We our country and we're prepared to fight for it. Amen. Ashley, how you guys doing? Good to see you. Good to be with you. Clemson, how are you feeling? Right on. Because I tell you what, I'm going to do everything in my power to earn the respect and the support of the people of South Carolina. Because let me tell you something, it's time for us to Welcome once again to Where Did You Get This Number? The podcast that takes you inside the data to talk to the people who drive it. I am Anthony Salvanto of CBS News. Today's big number is three. That's the order in which South Carolina goes in the Democratic primaries behind Iowa and New Hampshire, of course. But some argue it's number one, at least in terms of importance. We will get to that. But first, let me say why we're talking about South Carolina on this episode. You know, summertime brings some of these iconic events where people in the early states get to meet and hear from the candidates directly. One of those that's coming up is really exciting for political junkies to watch. That's the South Carolina Democratic Party convention. And along with that goes uh, Representative Jim Clyburn's famous, world famous fish fry. So to talk about that and to set the stage for why all this is so important, uh, I am grateful to be joined by Antoine Seawright. Antoine, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am well. Let me introduce you to everybody. Uh, Antoine is the founder and CEO of Blueprint Strategy that is based in South Carolina. That makes him a bona fide Democratic strategist and a uh, CBSN contributor. So, Antoine, uh, let me start with that. Can you set the scene for us at this fish fry that's coming up, this Dem convention, the candidates, I suppose, will be coming into town. What is this like? Take us inside that. Well, the Jim Clyburn world famous fish fry is exactly what it is said to be world famous. I know people in Iowa love the steak fry and they think it's a big deal, but nothing compares to the Jim Clyburn fish fry. It includes music. It includes lots of Jack and Diet Coke because that's the favorite drink of the whip and fried fish. And it's just a good time. You know, our Democratic weekend in South Carolina um, starts usually uh, on a Friday. We have our annual party dinner. It used to be called the Jefferson Jackson dinner. Now that's changed to the Blue Pen Metal dinner. And then following the dinner is the Jim Clyburn World Famous Fish Ride. That event started because not everyone can afford to pay hundreds of dollars to sit at a black tie dinner to hear someone speak. But everyone can show up at the free fish fry and they can touch hands with the same politicians and people who will be at that dinner. 
They can also hear from candidates like we will hear from at least 19 that we know of uh, on June 21st for this year's fish fry. But also it's just good to do what I call retail politics. And in a day and age in which more people focus on high tech, the world of Jim Clyburn, which I've been fortunate to come through, focus on really a high touch method. And there's no way to touch people than this fish fry, this annual fish fry that happens every year for the past 20 some odd years. And when I tell you people come from across the country and sometimes across the world, they do that every single year. I'm willing to bet the food is better than at the black tie dinner, too. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's good. <laughs> Listen, if you grew up in the South, you know the importance of good, hot, fried fish. <laughs> and not to mention the French fries that come along with it. And it's always good to have uh, Uncle Jack with a little uh, Diet Coke, uh, if that's your preference, to help wash it all down. <laughs> <laughs> i got to try to get that with you. So now... You know, when you mentioned in this digital age, right, everything seems to be online. Candidates have more reach, at least in that respect, than ever before. Can you take us through what happens and what the candidates need to say when they get to that fish fry, when they're making those speeches that's really going to move the needle for them in South Carolina? Well, this year would be different. Um, Usually the candidates will all address the body at the dinner. Our party chair has taken that option off the table this year, so everyone will get to speak at the fish fry. I think this will be the first time in which you have that number of candidates all on stage at one time. So we've confirmed already 19. I suspect we'll probably get past 19 as the days and the weeks go by closer to the fish fry. I'll tell you what I've told every candidate who's reached out to me about how to connect in South Carolina. And I I live by these principles when it comes to my politics. Be honest, be authentic, and be genuine. But also know what the temperature and the mood is in South Carolina. It's one thing to give a speech in Iowa or New Hampshire about some of the things going on nationally. But when you come to South Carolina, I like to believe that our issues are very specific and very unique in their own way. Uh, When it comes to issues like health care, which is on the top of most people's minds in South Carolina, in the South in particular, We've had five rural hospitals closed because our state legislature, controlled by Republicans, refused to expand Medicaid, lost of 44,000 jobs, millions of dollars sent back to Washington, D.C. that belonged to the taxpayers. Talk about the education. It's no secret we have what we know as the corridor of shame in the state in which President Obama had a real focus on. You know, talk about quality of life issues and how you plan to fix it. But I also told every candidate who's reached out to me at this point, the number one issue of my day, and I say of my day because it was the number one issue, I think, of my sharecropping grandparents' day, and that's voting rights. Because we can put together all the platforms in the world and all the legislative ideas or proposals. But if we don't have free access to the ballot box, particularly people of color, where Republicans have done a good job of trying to suppress our vote over the years, none of the other things matter. And we've seen what voter suppression can do in the midterms, and we saw what it did in 2016. And so I've told told everyone, focus on those things, but also be yourself and allow your record, your platform, the things you've advocated for and the things that's gotten you to the point where you are now, allow those things to speak for you. So let me unpack that a little bit. Authenticity, that's a word we hear a lot about. What exactly defines authenticity or at least juxtapose it against what seems 
inauthentic to people. Well, it's when you some people call it pandering, when you figure out the demographics of South Carolina and the Democratic primary, 60 percent African-American, 55 percent women. Yet you spent uh, zero days or not many days throughout your career focusing on issues that impact um, communities of color, like some of the issues we face of this day um, happen to do. And so you find yourself trying to fit in and fit the mold for what you think voters want to hear instead of taking your own approach and being authentic. And the one thing I can tell you about African-American voters who will ultimately decide who the Democratic nominee will be, we can sniff out and smell when someone is not being genuine, not being authentic, and not being honest. And and I think politicians do themselves a real disservice, particularly non-African-American politicians who come into the black community for their support. I think they do themselves a long-term disservice when they do not allow themselves to be who they really are. And if you don't have a record or have a career of working on issues that impact that community, then guess what? There's no time to start uh, than now. And that's been my advice to Mayor Pete, who's taken some heat for not being able to connect with African-American voters. I think he polled at less than 1% in South Carolina. Look, you may have not done it before, but now's a good time to figure out what that looks like and put forth a policy agenda or a policy prescription that will then connect and you chart a new pathway forward. So let me put some of that in context for, for people out there. You know, South Carolina Democratic primary voters, you you're correct, of course, in that the six and ten are African American, and that is different from New Hampshire and Iowa, which are predominantly white voters. At least breaking that down along racial lines. Now, you mentioned a couple of candidates. Um, you mentioned Mayor Pete, and we remember that he himself said, if I remember correctly, that he needed help, that he had to make inroads with African American voters. And you know, when I look. Out nationally, you see one in five people who voted for Democrats, at least back in the midterms, uh, was African-American. So obviously a key part of the of the Democratic constituency. And then you look back at the primaries from last time, from 2016, and almost four in 10 people who vote in most of the early states, the early states overall, are non-white in, in any event. So We've got this dynamic where we've got South Carolina being the first state in which uh, non-white voters, where African-American voters are heavily represented. But do people often treat the vote, that voting block as a monolith? And are there components of it? One, you know, one part that a candidate could make inroads with, one part that some candidates simply cannot. And what specifically does that take? Well, I can tell you what, uh, if someone has in the past, I think Vice President Biden's support uh, is proving that black voters are not monolithic, uh, especially when it comes to black women and what I call the more seasoned voting block of African-American voters, and that's those over 52. Notice and that is I, that he's doing well in the polls absolutely. with is, African-Americans he, at this point. Especially, again, with the most seasoned voting block. Not old, because I don't want to call people old, but I say seasoned. And that uh, strikes and, people as, as a surprise in some respects because there are African-American candidates running. Well, because there's it, Kamala but, Harris and but it, there's but it, Cory Booker. But it proves to the point they're not monolithic. It also <laughs> proves to the point that if you are able to talk the talk and walk the walk, 
you can connect with black voters and you do not have to be African-American. And I think that's been proven over time because guess what? It wasn't until Barack Obama, you know, we can't say Jesse Jackson, but it wasn't until in my lifetime, it wasn't until Barack Obama came along where black people had a real option. You know, again, Jesse Jackson was there, but that was before my time. But black people had a real option that they can touch and feel and say this thing is realistic. And so that came about. But now we've gone past the Obama era. And yes, we have Booker and yes, we have Harris. Uh, but Biden seems to be carrying the water of the day to this point. So it and, sounds and, like, you know, it sounds like there's a point which, you know, he served with Barack Obama. So so that that clearly has connected him to the African-American voter, at least part of it. Right. But and that's experience. But to unpack a little bit this this walk the walk and and talk the talk is there a particular thing that a candidate needs to say needs to address a particular policy that you think is you know ding that connects well, let me tell you why I think Biden is doing so well. Um, he's had a track record over time of working on issues that impact African-American voters. And I think the one thing black voters talk to, at least the ones I talk to all across the country, is that stability is a factor. And he has a proven track record of stability and working on issues and working within these communities all across the country. And I think that's why he's resonating so well. And the fact, I think him working with Barack Obama for eight years, yes, that plays a role. But prior to that, Biden has a own his own political career to stand on, his own political footing or foundation to stand on. And I think that's also been helpful. And he's been very reliable, but most importantly, going back to what I said earlier, he's been very consistent. He's always been middle-class Joe. He's always been a, a high touch retail type politician type who can go in any community he can go in the barbershop or he can go to the you know the democratic party dinner and you will find the same person um, and i think that a person's body of work or his catalog of work over the years has made a difference to him now even though he has not been successful pri- uh, previously in running from the office of president Last time around, Bernie Sanders did not do well with African-American voters, right? He lost to Hillary Clinton on that by by three to one. Now, is there has there been a change in the way Bernie Sanders, who's also, you know, a, a top tier candidate in the early polls? Is there been a way a change in the way he's approached the black vote and, and sort of adjacent to that? You know, he's talking about economic issues. That's clearly been a big front and center part of his platform and economic issues, at least I see in the polls, are always a big uh, concern, big part of of African-American voters as they are for voters overall. So is there anything about Bernie Sanders that you're seeing that's changed from 2016? Well, I can tell you this. I think Bernie Sanders has the same math problem, if not even worse than 2016. The 2016 race, like all races, are totally different than this 2020 race. And the fact of the matter is he was, for the most part, one-on-one with Hillary Clinton when we got to South Carolina and she dominated the course of the day. Uh, However, I think with two African-American, two credible African-American candidates, you have Biden, who is the flavor of the moment. And with people like Elizabeth Warren, who are putting forth an aggressive policy agenda um, that's connecting with African-American women, I think his math problem could be worse when you think long term about this race. Uh, I is think there a that- more conservative 
uh, element of the African-American vote that gets overlooked sometimes, at least uh, even on social issues? You know, abortion is top of the the news now. I I think that for most African-American voters, their faith um, tends to always outweigh their politics. However, Mm -hmm. I do think that people are flexible, and I think we've moved away from an era of being a one or two issue voters or one or two things keeping people from voting a certain way. I think when you think about the collective and what's at stake, Um, how intense the moment we're in and the fact that when you see this administration and the Republican Party have done everything they can to take African-American people full steam backward, I think you see um, some real exceptions and I think you see people who are are lighting up a bit about, you know, one or two things keeping them from supporting the candidate. And so they want to be all in um, because they know if we continue going down this path that we are going now, it would make even people like my sharecropping grandparents who are no longer with us fall to their knees and pray even harder for the next generation. You know, you talk about the current administration and, you know, the president talks and and often talks about a lower unemployment rate for African-Americans, as it is for many people across the country. Um, He talks about his support with minority communities. Is that not right or is that not as important? And if not, why? You know, and part of that, too, Antoine, is I wonder, as we go forward in this campaign, And for even for our conservative and our Republican listeners out there, should they expect a Democratic candidate who's going to try to turn out and motivate more Democrats to try to win? Or should they expect a Democratic candidate who's going to try to reach out and even persuade some of those Republican voters uh, to come to come over to the D side? Well, let me address that first. I think you're going to see both. I think there's no doubt in my mind we have to maximize Democratic turnout, base turnout. You always focus on home first. Uh, if your home is not right, chances are anything outside the house will not be right. Uh, but I also think you're going to see an effort for candidates um, who will also be on the ticket with whoever our nominee will be, who will reach out to voters uh, like those in the midterms who voted for Democrats, who essentially voted for uh, Republicans or voted for Trump in 16. I think you're going to see an intense effort to reach out to those. And then there's always that group of people, uh, those two groups of people I call independent voters and independent thinkers who are always on the table because they pledge their allegiance, not necessarily to a party or a candidate, but to who they feel is the right person in the moment. And so I think you're definitely going to see that. But I also think that more so now than ever, you're going to see an increased intense effort to make sure we over maximize African-American women and the African-American vote in particular, because I think it was the last election. We had 13 percent of African-American men vote for Donald Trump. And that was disturbing in, in, in a lot of ways. But I also think that you're going to see a real robust effort to reach brown voters, Hispanic voters, who are a very large and growing segment of the population in this country, and they turn out to vote. I think in 2016, we also saw some historical numbers for Latinos who voted for the Republican candidate. Going back to your your other issue about Trump and African Americans, look, the president can wave his flag uh, all he wants about his support in the African American community, 
and I don't know where these posters seem to get their numbers from, but if you go to any barbershop I go to in this country, if you go to any beauty salon, if you go to any church, people are so frustrated and disappointed. In fact, I would tell you the festivity level among black people are probably even higher than they were when the second Bush came around at the end of his term, because in a lot of ways, Donald Trump is trying to take our community backwards. When you look at the assault on voting rights, when you look at what he's doing on affordable housing, when you look at while Republicans like to talk about the economy is doing well, the economy is doing well for some, but not for all. There are still people forget about trying to make ends meet. They're putting two ends together, hoping they will meet. He loves to talk about, you know, wages and so forth. Look, there's still people who are out of work in our community. And when unemployment rate is 5% in other communities, it's 10% in the black community. And so when you think about those issues, that matters to black people. Oh, this is going to be going to be interesting to watch, Antoine, and we will talk more for sure. Um, let me thank you again for for a great conversation and for a great download on all that that's happening in in the uh, very important state of South Carolina. Um, Antoine Antoine Seawright, uh, CEO of Blueprint Strategy and CBSN contributor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope to be back soon. And that's going to wrap us for this episode of Where Did You Get This Number? I want to thank everybody at CBS News Radio, in particular my producer, Alan Pang, who pulls this all together so well as he does each week. And thank you, as always, for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe. We will have much more as this campaign rolls along each week. And uh, and rate us if you liked it as well. I am Anthony Salvato for CBS News. Thanks once again. And I'll see you back here next week.